is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness, and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. Fifteen hundred years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. Five hundred years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And fifteen minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you know tomorrow. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And a welcome to the broadcast as we fast approach the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy, the 35th president, November 22nd, 1963. And uh, I know we've been here on the program, we've been uh, hammering this subject pretty hard uh, for most of the year, actually, I, b- I believe we began our JFK series with James D. Eugenio back in early spring. And uh, we just finished our uh, eighth and final episode with uh, with James uh, last week. And uh, here we are. Uh, this is, of course, the, uh, the closest we'll get to the actual anniversary date. So we're going to discuss it, obviously, full bore. And then we'll uh, probably close the books on uh, JFK, at least for the time being, unless there's something monumental that comes down the pipe in terms of uh, new evidence uh, or what have you. Uh, joining us in just a moment, well, before I, I, I introduce my guests, before I introduce my guests, let me uh, explain, just to give it a little context. I was born a little less than two months uh, after the assassination, January of 1964, uh, you know, there's the old Dennis Miller joke about uh, you know, when you ask young people today, where were they when JFK was shot? They they seem to think that you're talking about the Oliver Stone movie. Uh, where were you when the movie was shot? Uh, but my first and only trip to Dealey Plaza uh, came in August of 2012. And... I was walking around uh, the uh, Daily Plaza and then into the, uh, the Texas Book Depository Building, and the phone rang. My cell phone rang. And who was it? Uh, but none other than legendary JFK researcher Jim Mars. His book, Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, along with uh, Garrison's uh, book, of course, uh, served as the basis for Oliver Stone's uh, movie, JFK, which many people look at as you know documentary truth. Uh, what had happened was I was down there to shoot a television episode for the conspiracy show, the TV program, and I was to meet up with Jim at his home in Texas, in uh, sort of outside the, uh, the, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, and he was calling me just to confirm. So I mentioned, uh, you know, Jim, this is great that you called. I'm standing right here in Daly Plaza. And he proceeded to give me a guided tour on the phone while I'm walking around, and it was just a surreal moment. Uh, to have someone like Jim Mars, uh, I remember walking. I was walking down uh, Elm Street. There's a little um, marker right on the curb, the exact spot supposedly where the fatal head wound um, occurred, Kennedy's uh, fatal head wound. And as I'm approaching that, uh, I'm, I'm explaining where I am, and Jim says, "Okay, stop now. Turn around and uh, look over your shoulder." And so I did. I followed his instructions. I looked up to the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository building, and he says, now do you, in that Texas drawl, do you see that tree there? 
And I said, yes, Jim, but that tree, we're talking 50 years ago, that tree would have been much shorter. He was trying to convince me that there was no way Oswald could have had a cleaner shot from that from, from the sixth floor window because of the tree. And I said, but Jim, the tree would have been much smaller than he said. Oh, no, 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 no. That tree has been pruned back a couple of times. They, they pruned it back for the JFK movie and a, and, a, and a subsequent time. He said, that tree looks just as it did 50 years ago. There's no way. And it's true. When you look at that tree in front of the building, there's, it's very hard to imagine that Oswald or anyone else would have had a clear shot from the window. He said, ah, but look across. Look across Houston. See that building in behind? That's the Dell Tech building. He said, that's where one of the gunmen was. Or, and that's where they would have had a clean shot. And that made some sense. Uh, Jim Mars, as I mentioned, will be uh, joining us in just a moment. Again, uh, New York Times bestselling author, Crossfire, the plot that killed Kennedy. Uh, but before Jim joins us, Another old friend of the uh, program, who is a, um, a noted JFK researcher in his own, um, uh, certainly in his own, on his own, and he is responsible for bringing the Zapruder film uh, to Canada, smuggling it across the Canada. This is in the early 70s, before it was first seen on national television with Geraldo Rivera. Uh, Nelson Thal uh, received a copy of the uh, Zapruder film from Penn Jones, another JFK researcher, brought it uh, brought it to Canada, arranged to have it to have it played on a, a Canada U.S. border station. Now it, it wasn't broadcast, you know, to uh, during the the day. This was when most of the stations had sort of signed off their broadcasting day, uh, but they alerted. A number of researchers at universities and elsewhere. This is in the days before, you know, VCRs, but people had the big uh, video recording machines. A few institutions would have those, and uh, they were alerted that the the 26 seconds of the Zapruder film would be playing unannounced when the the station signed off, and that they were to hit the record buttons. And this is how the Zapruder film was first sort of distributed to uh, to other. Uh, researchers. And uh, let's say hello to our good friend, the aforementioned Nelson Thal. Nelson, how are you? Very well. It's uh, it's an honor being here, Richard, and certainly a, a tremendous anniversary, 50 years. Amazing that a cover-up's been able to remain in place, and we'll talk a little bit about it later. Okay, and uh, we'll, um, uh, before I ask you, uh, let me ask you this right now before I get Jim on here. He's standing by. It's the question that everybody asks everybody who is of a certain age. You've told me the story. It's quite interesting. As an assassination researcher, uh, you told me the, the, when you when you first learned of Kennedy's assassination. You remember that the uh, being at school and a girl telling you. Yeah, yeah. We were told the teacher came in and said that the president had been assassinated, and um, I turned to a friend of mine and said, "What's assassination mean?" I didn't know what the mean what it meant. I was eleven years. Uh, 11 years old, and um, they dismissed us, and we all went home, and uh, the whole world changed and, uh, right at that moment. That was your first exposure to the word assassination, and you didn't know what it meant, and yeah. uh, uh, at what point did you sort of make it your life's work? Well, 1969 with the Clay Shaw trial. That's when I started to really get heavily into and start to study it and read everything about it. And um, uh, then I got in touch with Penn Jones and went down to Dallas and had a had a complete tour of Dealey Plaza with Penn by Penn Jones and 
eventually what happened was Penn had got me an interview with Jim Garrison, which wasn't hard to get because he had been, this was 1972, he was totally smeared right. by the media. And, and um, I made arrangements with uh, with Garrison that I would use best efforts to get it on onto, uh, onto border stations, and I got it onto CBLT and uh, the CBC equivalent down in Windsor. And what year was that that you brought the Zapruder film? 1972. You smuggled the Zapruder film. Yeah. If you'd been caught Penn with that Jones film. went to – Penn Jones brought it to me at the airport and I got on the plane and I would have gotten 77 years in jail. That's what I was told. 77 years in jail. Yeah, I'd still be in jail now if I'd gotten caught. And you met Penn Jones at Love Field? Airfield? Was it Love Airfield at that time? At that time, it would have been, um, well, that was the, um, yeah, that's right. Air Canada flew that th- th- down to Love Field. All right. Uh, let's uh, bring in uh, Jim Mars. I mentioned the author of Crossfire, the plot that killed Kennedy, and uh, I can't think of anyone else uh, aside from Nelson that I'd want to uh, spend uh, talking about the 50th anniversary then, the legendary Jim Mars. Jim, how are you? Hey, Richard, it's great to be with you this evening. Well, you know, obviously the, the mainstream media has been out in full force. Uh, all the documentaries uh, that have been airing on television, again, propping up sort of the uh, the official uh, Warren Commission uh, findings, and, uh, the, you know, the a great deal of attention being played to uh, the magic bullet theory and trying to explain why the magic bullet isn't so magical. Uh, and I'm often, I've often wondered, uh, Jim, whether or not we hang too much on the magic bullet. Uh, I, I want to get your thought on that. Even let's f- assume for a second that the, the shots came from behind and uh, the bullet that, you know, came through, uh, did come through Kennedy's back, out his throat, uh, into Connolly's uh, side, through his wrist and into his uh, thigh. Uh, let's assume that that happened the way it did. I mean, that doesn't necessarily destroy... Uh, you know the the idea that that uh, Oswald act you know acted alone that that he was with he was involved in a conspiracy. Do we hang too much on the magic bullet theory? No, in fact, uh, I think the big problem is is that people have been distracted and confused and befuddled for too long. Uh, you know, let's. Uh, I, I try to advise people not to get too sucked into all of the minutia of the Kennedy assassination because as one who's I've uh, been on the job since maybe 15 minutes after the shooting. Uh, I've looked into everything, and I guarantee you it'll uh, it'll drive you nuts. Uh, basically, Richard, it comes down to simply a question of belief, okay? If you believe in and trust the federal government of the United States, then you believe and trust the evidence that they've presented to us. And if you just accept that and don't look any further, it's very damning against Lee Harvey Oswald, and it certainly paints him as possibly the assassin. But if you distrust the government, and I submit, we well, we should. I mean, they've only lied to us and been caught at it time after time after time. Uh, okay, remember uh light at the end of the tunnel in Vietnam, no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, read my lips, no new taxes, you know, come on, you can keep your health plan, come on, all they do is lie. So if you distrust the government, then you have to question the evidence that they presented to us, and when you do, it all starts falling apart. They said, well, we've got his fingerprints on the rifle, but it turns out the funeral home director will tell you that he was there when three days later when the Secret Service agents placed Oswald's dead hand on the rifle and he said he had a hard time getting the fingerprint ink 
off of Oswald's dead hand before they buried him that afternoon. And then later that day is when they suddenly announced they had his fingerprints on the gun. The, the two men, two naval technicians, Gerald Custer and Floyd Reby, who, who took the autopsy x-rays and photographs of President Kennedy, uh, are now on the record saying, well, the ones they're showing us today are not even the ones we took. They're fakes. They're phonies. All right, Jim, listen, i got to take a time out. We'll come back. Jim Mars. Crossfire, the plot that killed Kennedy, and in studio, Nelson Thal, media scientist, Marshall McLuhan, archivist. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Can I have one statement, please? I'd like some legal representation. These police officers have not allowed me to, to have any. I uh, I don't know what this is all about. Kill the president. I work in that building. Were you in the building at the time? Naturally, if I work in that building, yes, sir. Back up, man. Come on, man. The no, they're taking me in because of the fact that I live in the Soviet Union. I'm just a patsy. All right, there, there we go. Obviously, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. I am a patsy. Those immortal words. Uh, Jim Mars is uh, with us on the line from his home in Texas, in studio, media scientist, assassination researcher, the man who smuggled the Zapruder film into Canada uh, back in 1972, Nelson Thal. Uh, before we get back to the program, let me just welcome a new affiliate, KABQ 1350 in Albuquerque. That's Albuquerque's progressive talk, KABQ AM 1350. Welcome uh, to the Conspiracy Show family and great to be part of the KABQ family. All right, um, we were talking about the uh, the, uh, the magic bullet theory or the single bullet theory, and of course the mainstream uh, media now uh, all this week, of course, airing documentaries attempting to, uh, I guess, sort of prop up the magic bullet theory. Uh, before I get back to Jim Nelson, I want to ask you a question. What's your main? What would you offer up as the best evidence to suggest that the magic bullet theory? Uh, how does it fall apart for you? For me, it fell apart when I looked at frame 230 of the Warren Commission, of the Zapruder film, because that frame shows Conley with his right hand holding his Stetson hat, just as he said he was, and Kennedy is grabbing his throat. So that shows that the first bullet, the bullet which supposedly, according to the Warren Commission, has gone through Kennedy's throat, is supposed to also smash through Conley's right wrist. Well, but there you can see his right wrist is holding his Stetson hat and is nowhere near his thigh. So that is a smoking gun frame 230 disproves the single bullet theory instantly. Uh, and Jim, where for you does the uh, the magic bullet theory or the single bullet theory fall apart? Well, the uh, single bullet theory falls apart because of our only unelected president, Gerald R. Ford. You see, the authors of the Warren Commission report initially were going to tell the truth, and they wrote that Kennedy was first shot in the back. It was Gerald Ford, with no known medical expertise, who ordered them to change the wording to Kennedy was shot in the neck. This allowed them to argue that a bullet passed through his neck, didn't hit any bone, and went right on down to hit Connolly uh, and cause all the wounds. This, of course, is the single bullet theory, uh, more appropriately called the uh, magic bullet theory. Uh, but here's the, here's the clincher. 
was somebody just mistaken? No, the, they knew. The autopsy showed he was struck at the level of the third thoracic vertebra, which is below your shoulder blades, in the back to the right of the backbone. Okay? On page 193 of the Warren Commission meeting of January 27, 1964, their own chief counsel, J. Lee Rankin, says, quote, Seems quite apparent now, since we have a picture of where the bullet entered in the back, that the bullet entered below the shoulder blade to the right of the backbone, which is below the place where the picture shows the bullet came out the neck band of the shirt in front. And that bullet, according to the autopsy, didn't strike any bone at all. And that bullet didn't go through. And so how it could turn, and he stops. He stops because he's about to say, how could it turn in midair and strike Connolly? And it can't. And they knew it couldn't, so they lied to us. So let's break it down then. Uh, the official version, three shots fired. The first one, uh, shot A, missed. Uh, the second shot... Well, the Warren Commission said that was the magic bullet, the first shot. That, it was only later, uh, one of the later ones, uh, Gerald Posner, who says, well, maybe the first one missed and it was the second one because the first shot striking was so untenable. So, in your uh, estimation or your you know research, how many shots were fired, do you believe? Well, I go with the two separate sets of acoustical scientists that uh, studied the uh, impulses on the Dallas Police uh, radio tape uh, independently, and both concluded that there were as many as nine, perhaps ten sounds they could not rule out as being gunshots. But they could only say with a 98% probability that shots were fired from the area, the region of the Sixth floor of the school book depository and from behind the wooden picket fence on the grassy knoll. Okay, so there was probably a conspiracy. That's the last official word of the federal government. And Nelson, how many shots do you believe were fired? Well, one thing's for sure. Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry withheld the paraffin test done on Oswald that day for over eight years, which showed negative. So regardless of the number of shots that were fired... Oswald did not fire a gun on November 22nd, 1963. That's the first thing. Uh, and um, I would say I, I, in Farewell America, which was the first book that uh, detailed it, it had four gunmen. And I'd go along with uh, – that's a French intelligence group. Uh, I, I'd say that uh, – and Penn Jones felt there were five nests, sniper nests. Each guy has a radio man and takes one shot. So I'd say that there was a minimum of five shots. And the, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, uh, they utilized this, this recording from a police officer's, I guess they call it a dicta, a dicta belt or a dicta recorder. Uh, there were eight, eight acoustic, uh, whatever you want to call them, shots or what have you, but they only had enough money to analyze four of them. Is that correct? Well, they only test fired from the two locations, the sixth floor of the school book depository and from behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll. I submit that if they had test-fired from other locations, for instance, the Dow Tex building or the county records building or even the south side of uh, Elm Street, uh, south side of the uh, Dealey Plaza, they might have matched up and found that they were three or four locations. But the point is, all of this is actually kind of inconsequential because Nelson's absolutely right. The evidence shows Oswald was innocent of the shooting. The paraffin test showed he had traces of nitrates on hands but none on the face and no gunpowder on either his hands or his face. 
that's an indication he had not fired a rifle. I can assure you that if uh, it was Oswald firing that old loose-bolted Italian war rifle, the Mandlicker Carcano, the only way he could have gotten off three shots in less than six seconds was by not removing the rifle from his cheek in his, the classic rifle-firing position. He'd have to cock the bolt like that, and if he did, as soon as he opened that bolt, his face would have been sprayed with gunpowder and nitrates, but there was none on his face. Also, when the police asked him, where were you at the time of the shooting, he said he was in a downstairs lunchroom of the depository and correctly identified two employees who had been in the downstairs lunchroom eating their lunch. In fact, it was in that downstairs lunchroom that they later found Oswald's jacket and, and working clipboard. Uh, and now we have the uh, account of Geraldine Reed, uh, who said that uh, Oswald had come into her office in the depository. She got left behind uh, to guard the cash box and to watch the phones and stuff while everybody else went out to watch the president. And she said Oswald came in and asked for change for a dollar so he could operate the uh, vending machine and get a Coca-Cola. And she, while she was making change for him, they heard the shots. And both of them looked at each other and said, what's that? Okay. So Oswald, here, here is a defense witness saying that she had encountered and was making change for Oswald at the time of the shooting. Now, you mentioned the uh, – I want to go back to the, the paraffin wax test, and, and we should explain that this is a test uh, where the – I guess the hands and the, uh, the face are covered with a paraffin wax and then peeled off, and uh, any, if there's any evidence or, or residue of, uh, of nitrate or gunpowder, it would show up. Now, the nitrate – on the hands. That would make sense, would it not, for someone who worked at a, at a book depository building? Explain. Absolutely, because nitrates, you can pick up nitrates off of all kinds of things, and particularly off of ink, uh, newspaper ink, or, or uh, and, the, and the book boxes that Oswald was hired to move around had, uh, you know, labels uh, stamped on all over them, so it's, uh, you know, he could have gotten uh, ink all over his hands. Also, urine can uh, register positive on a uh, nitrate test, but we won't go into his bathroom habits. All right. We've talked about the Zapruder film, and, and Nelson, of course, again, you were instrumental in bringing that, uh, responsible for bringing that, uh, the, the Zapruder film, to Canada. Uh, we, we, we only seem to talk about the Zapruder film. I'm wondering uh, about the other film footage. There is the Orville Nix uh, uh, movie, and and he was uh, he gave us sort of an opposite uh, 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 angle that that, that Zapruder did. Talk to me a little bit about the Orville Nix video and, or film rather, and the importance of that. Well, the Orville Nix film, I'll pass it on to Jim in a second, but uh, the Orville Nix film, the importance there is once again it shows Kennedy's head being flung backwards, which indicates a shot from the front. Correct, Jim? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, of course, uh, you, you might recall that Jackie Kennedy crawls on the rear deck of the car to pick up a piece of his head. That, too, indicates a shot from the front. The official explanation for why his head seems to snap back. It had, I, I, I've heard this... Uh, you know, this convoluted uh, medical explanation, something to do with the tension extent in the muscles of the back and how it's like a spring. Uh, can you walk me through sort of that explanation, Jim? Have you heard that? Why his, why, what's the official version for why Kennedy's head supposedly snaps back, even though, you know, he was shot from behind according to their own theory? Uh, yes. Well, that is the jet effect. Uh, you know, uh, again, uh, keep in mind that I've covered courtrooms 
<laughs> for, you know, 50 years almost. And I assure you that you can always find some expert that you can hire for money who will tell you anything you want to hear. So you have to be a little bit leery of uh, of all this expert testimony. But the idea was that um, when the shot entered Kennedy's uh, from the rear uh, and it somehow blew out through the rear um, blood and brain matter and acted as like a jet engine and propelled his head forward or backwards or they don't know it, it's it's a jet effect it opened up the front of his head and then that pushed him back it's all silly because the point is a 12 year old child can look at this Zapruder film and all you have to do is know basic physics for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction to know that obviously it's hit from the front since he was knocked to the rear it's that simple I've I've uh, fired guns all my life down here in Texas been deer hunting hog hunting, uh, bird hunting, shot beer cans, all kinds of targets, and I've never had one jump towards me. <laughs> they, they always go with the momentum of the bullet. Uh, but but before we get totally off the Zapruder film, I want to mention that uh, in my new updated version of Crossfire, uh, I have a whole little section on new information that's been developed, particularly by Douglas Horn and the uh, Assassination Records Review Board, uh, interviewing the two men who actually worked on the Zapruder film, Homer McMahon and Morgan Bennett. And they have admitted and they have confirmed what we suspected all along. The Zapruder film, you cannot even trust it. It was in the hands of the CIA's National Photographic Interpretation Center the day after the assassination, where they made three copies, which is the same number that turned up in Dallas on Monday when it was turned over to Time Life. So even before Time Life got it, it had already been manipulated. Well, let's talk about the manipulation of the Zapruder film. First of all, Nelson, the, the, the copy that you brought to Canada, was it manipulated? Oh, I'm sure it was because it came from a copy made that Jim Garrison had taken over the lunch hour during the Clay Shaw trial and whipped off a copy. It was a very, very it was it was pre Groden, Bob Groden. It was a very, very What does that mean, pre Bob Groden? Groden came along years later and it was able to give us a much better copy. The thing is this, Jim, if they were gonna alter it, um they they did switch frame three for three fifteen and three fourteen in volume eight of the Warren Commission to make it look like his head went forward, but they still didn't um, alter the Zapruder film. He definitely was went backwards with tremendous violence. So they did do, and certainly they they took out frames. For instance, the Stemmen Freeway sign was cut down. It it was hit by a bullet hole, and there, there's frames missing there because they didn't want want uh, that freeway sign being hit to be shown there were a number of other changes in the in in the in the Zapruder film no doubt about but not enough to to make it impossible to tell that there was a lot of a lot of things going on all right we'll uh, take a time out jim mars is with us author of crossfire the plot that killed kennedy served as the basis for oliver stone's movie jfk nelson thal assassination researcher media scientist in studio back with more of our 50th anniversary jfk special stay with us Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. 
This is The Conspiracy Show. All right, we are back. Jim Mars is with us uh, on the line from uh, Texas, the great state of Texas. Of course, he the author of Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, a New York Times bestseller. Also, his uh, 2000 uh, book, Rule by Secrecy, which traced the hidden history that connects modern secret societies to the ancient mysteries, was also a New York Times uh, bestseller. Uh, In studio, Nelson Thal, media scientist and assassination uh, researcher. Uh, I want to talk uh, about, uh, go back to the Orville Nix uh, film again. And uh, it's important because Zapruder uh, had his back to the grassy knoll, but Orville Nix's perspective, we see the grassy knoll. I mean, is there any evidence there in the the Orville Nix footage that a shot may have been fired from the grassy knoll? Because, you know, he sort of sweeps it and you don't, I don't know, you, you don't see anybody there that looks like a shooter, but who knows? Jim? Well... Uh, number one, <laughs> there are researchers who claim they can see flashes on the grassy knoll and various vague figures uh, in the next film. I'm not a, I'm not an expert, so I can't tell you if that's legitimate or not. But what I can tell you is Orville Nix himself and his granddaughter, who I am still in contact with, say that when the government took his film and when it was returned, it was not the same. They had altered that film, too. Okay, this is the key to it. It's not who could have shot Kennedy. Anyone could have shot Kennedy. KGB agents, mafia hitmen, Castro people, you know, KGB, uh, CIA people. Yes, and even the lone nut. The point is, who has the power to obscure and obstruct and cover up the assassination of the President of the United States for 50 years? Certainly not Oswald and certainly not communist. Well, Nelson, you you wanted to say something about, about about that as well. I mean, when we're talking about the, you know the mob often comes up, and and whether they were able to would have been able to pull this off. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, let's remember this: that um, <clears throat> who has the power to eliminate the protection of the president, change the parade route, send Oswald to Russia and get him back, get the FBI, CIA, and the police to mess up the investigation, get the U.S. cabinet all on a plane to Japan with no code book, get a third of the U.S. force in the air over American battle fatigues, get the Washington phone system cut off a half hour before the assassination, get JFK's enemies on the Warren Commission, wreck the autopsy, and get the national media to go to sleep. Powerful forces alone. Bertrand Russell said, if Lee Harvey Oswald was what he, they, they claim he was, a lone assassin, what's the big deal with national security? Now, what do you mean by that? What's the big deal? Well, why would you be concerned with national security? Why would you lock up, up all his income tax records and millions of other important documents? And the films, Jim was talking about films, um, the Bushka lady and uh, Mor- Mary Mormon. There's tons of other f- photographs that were taken that day that would show the other gunmen, but they were sanitized and put in the archives and we can't get at them for national security. Well, if it's a lone assassin, what is the big deal about national security? Excellent point. Yeah, it seems like the only uh, person who didn't have a camera uh, was uh, the president himself that yeah. day and maybe the first <laughs> right. lady. Yeah, and you know, guys, I was there. I, I was in Dallas area, okay? I was, on, uh, I was a sophomore in the university on a degree plan to uh, for journalism so to, i knew it was a big story and i was right on it and i want to tell you something they with the authorities were all over television all over radio in the dallas area 
uh, urging everyone to be patriotic and to come and hand in their films and their photographs that they had taken in Dealey Plaza for evidence purposes. And at that point in time, when everybody was had full faith and confidence in their government, everybody rushed down and handed everything in. The next film, the uh, Zapruder film, uh, the Dorman film, a few others, these are the only ones that we know about. They took up dozens, perhaps hundreds, and we've never seen them again. They disappeared into the dark hole of the federal government. And so, and yet there are stuff still coming out now. Just a few weeks ago, they suddenly came out with another film of the assassination that had laid in somebody's, uh, you know, closet for all these years. And there may be more. One of these days, maybe we'll get some more evidence. But when people ask, say to me, well, if there's a big conspiracy, you know, where's the evidence? Well, they took up the evidence. They hid it away, just as Nelson was uh, outlining. Uh, Jim, and you did this for me when I was uh, in Dealey Plaza over the phone, which I was mentioning earlier. It was very surreal. You were giving me a guided tour. I don't know if you remember that. I was in town. I was going to interview you later that day. You called to confirm the interview, and I happened to be there. And as I said, you were giving me this guided tour. I do recall, and you were actually in Dealey Plaza, and I kind of talked to you as you walked around. You right? said, "Yeah, you said, you know, turn, look over your shoulder, see the tree in front of the Texas Book Depository building. It's the same height it was back in '63. He wouldn't have gotten yeah. a clear shot." Then you said, "Look across the Houston to the Dell Tech building," and you started to lay out for me where the shooters may have been positioned. Uh, could you do that for me again? Where were the shooters, in your estimation? Well, now, now this is theorizing, okay. Uh, but uh, obviously there was uh, at least one shooter uh, to the rear. Now, uh, if anyone fired from that sixth-floor window of the book depository, I don't think they could have hit anything. I don't think they were intended to hit anything. If there was somebody shooting on the sixth-floor southeast corner uh, where they say is the sniper window, it's because somebody was there firing a uh, rifle for evidence purposes. So people would say, yeah, shot, shot came from up there. But now I think maybe a telling shot could have come from the wide open windows on the extreme west end of the sixth floor of the school book depository. I think also that there was a shot from the Daltex building because one of them seemed to be on a very low and almost level trajectory and the street drops, uh, you know, towards the triple underpass. And I think that since there was a shell casing found on the roof of the county records building, I think there possibly was a shot from there also. And uh, then, of course, obviously, from behind the uh, picket fence on the grassy knoll. In fact, if this was any other case, and uh, you found out that a man was shot in an open car and that uh, the majority of witnesses right near the car in that end of the, of the little park said that the shot came from behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll, and two separate sets of acoustical scientists confirmed that at least one shot came from behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll. And you have a photograph of a man firing from behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll. If I tried to tell you there was no one there, you'd think I was an idiot. All right, Jim, I've got to take a time out. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Jack Ruby gave clear clues to his role in the assassination when he was interviewed on camera. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives, 
people have that have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in will never let the true facts come above board to the to the world. Now these people are in very high positions, yeah. Yes. Jack Ruby said he would reveal the true story of the Kennedy assassination if he was moved from Dallas to Washington, D.C. for protection. Ruby feared for his life if he testified in Dallas, but no transfer to Washington, D.C. was ever authorized by federal authorities. Jack, let's think about the hearing. I want to correct what I stated before. If he was vice president, remember I said? If he was vice president? Yes, I did when I mentioned about Adelaide Stevens. If he was vice president, there would never have been an assassination of our beloved President Kennedy. Did you explain it, Jack? Well, the answer is the man in office now. All right, that was uh, Jack Ruby, and then uh, I don't know if you could hear it. It was a little muffled, but uh, he's asked in a hallway, uh, you know, about his comments about the vice president. And what Ruby was saying was, if Adelaide Stevenson had been Kennedy's vice president, none of this would have happened. And he said the answer to all this is the man in office, meaning the vice president, which would seem to implicate uh, LBJ. All right, we're uh, talking with Jim Mars on the phone from uh, Texas. Crossfire, the plot that killed Kennedy, served as the basis for Oliver Stone's uh, book, JFK. And, of course, in studio, Nelson Thal, media scientist, assassination researcher, the man who smuggled the Zapruder film into Canada. Uh, uh, Jim, you mentioned uh, photographs of, uh, of uh, a gunman behind the white picket fence and the grassy knoll. Uh, mm-hmm. What photograph is that, for those not aware? Uh-huh. That's the Mary Mormon photograph. <clears throat> and, w- and, and what does uh, it show? Years ago, uh, they, we were able to uh, secure uh, uh, the exact same type of Polaroid camera and found out that the lens was good enough to pick up details in the extreme background, and not through any kind of manipulation, but just simply a blow-up. Uh, it is quite obvious there's a picture of a man in a dark shirt, semicircular patch on his uh, left shoulder, uh, some kind of bright metallic object on his left chest, uh, and he is in a classic rifle-firing position with uh, partially obscuring his face is a flash or a puff of smoke exactly where some of the uh, uh, assassination witnesses placed it. In fact, that's another issue. Uh, people said that day that they saw smoke drifting off the grassy knoll, but the debunkers have always claimed that modern rifles do not use powder that smokes, and so they couldn't have seen this. And yet, in my new updated version of Crossfire, I publish a frame from the Dave Waveman, an NBC cameraman film, and you can plainly see the puff of white smoke drifting off the grassy knoll as Kennedy's uh, limousine with the stricken president uh, drives into the triple underpass. Uh, also, uh, Senator Yarborough, who was, I believe, two cars behind the uh, the presidential limo, and also the mayor's wife, uh, Mrs. Cabell, didn't they both claim that they smelled gun smoke? And keeping in mind that they're driving into the wind, supposedly, they both testified. Uh, that's, that's absolutely correct. In fact, uh, Senator Yarborough told me that uh, the whole motorcade came to a stop uh, and uh, which is not reflected in the Zapruder film, uh, indicating either all the witnesses were lying or the film has been altered. Uh, speaking of, Nelson, you might be interested to know also, in the, I also have 11 Hollywood film experts, who uh, all of them familiar with 8 and Super 8, um, who have looked at frame 317 of the Zapruder film, and they said without any question this is a crude painted-on <laughs> 
patch on the back of Kennedy's head, and of course it was there to obscure that large evulsive wound on the right rear portion of his head, which indicates a exit wound. Oh, that's interesting. It was painted on. Yeah, and they said it was a crude forgery. But see, and you know, um, when you talk about forgery on the Zapruder film, uh, Nelson, I think you'll agree with me, uh, they, they were under excruciatingly tight time frame and intense pressure oh, yeah. to try to hurry him get something done with that because I recall myself watching TV right after the the assassination. In fact, I'd been watching TV for maybe 15 minutes or more before they announced he was dead, and that was right about 1 o'clock. So I'd been, I was on to it like 12.45, 15 minutes after the shooting. And real quick, they said, we understand there's a man who's got a home movie of the uh, – assassination we'll have that on here just soon we can and as you know i'm sure you know they rushed all around dallas they went to channel eight and they went to uh to the kodak studio they went everywhere trying to get that film processed but nobody was set up to process super eight millimeter film so uh but they were announcing it right away so my point being that they already knew about the zapruder film it was being announced on television they couldn't have they couldn't secret it away forever so they were under intense pressure to try to hurry up and get that thing doctored up so they could say it was one lone assassin from the rear yeah so absolutely you're absolutely right let's talk a moment uh, about uh, oswald and and his um what what he did uh, after he left the Texas Book Depository building, supposedly. I mean, he uh, he crossed town in a, on a bus and took a cab. And uh, walk us through uh, where Oswald uh, supposedly went after the shooting. Well, you always hear people say that he fled the building. You know, well that you know right there, just that statement makes it sound like he's guilty. But if you'll stop and really look at it closely, again, that all falls apart. First off, he told the police that his uh, supervisor Bill Shelley had told him, go on home, there's not going to be any more work done here today, which was probably true. Uh, <clears throat> and he also said uh, to uh, a Secret Service uh, uh, inspector on Sunday that he told him, and it's right in the Ward Commission appendix, uh, that as he was leaving the school depository, a young man, a crew cut, ran up to him, showed him a book of identification, identified himself as Secret Service, and asked him where the phone was. Now, we're, sh- we're told an hour later he stopped by a cop out on a street in far south Dallas, and he shoots him down. But here's the Secret Service agent. He actually showed him where the phone was, and he said he stood and watched to make sure the guy got to the phone. Doesn't sound much like an escaping assassin, does it? Then he walks up the strolls up the street, and he gets on a bus, a city bus. That's not exactly your most uh, famous getaway vehicle. And the bus is heading back down towards Dealey Plaza and got caught in traffic. It wasn't moving, wasn't going anywhere. So he gets off the bus and then goes and was starting to get in the cab. But a woman came up and he said, oh, well, here, lady, you go ahead and you take it. And he offered it to her, but she said, no, thanks. So he went ahead and got in the cab and supposedly drove to his rooming house out in South Dallas. That doesn't sound much like an escaping assassin, does it? No, indeed. Now, what is the story, either Nelson or, or Jim, about a, a Dallas squad car uh, showing up at his at his rooming house and honking on the horn uh, like some sort of signal? What, what What is that all about? What happened there? 
Well, Arlene Roberts, who was uh, the landlady there at the rooming house, said that she was watching TV and she had heard that the president had been shot and, and that all of a sudden Oswald comes hustling in, doesn't say anything to her, just goes back to his room. And so while she's sitting there watching TV, she said a Dallas police car pulled up front and she thought maybe it was one of the officers that she knew and was a friend, but she looked out the window and she all she could see was that the, she noticed the number one and the number zero but she didn't recognize it, and she didn't think that was her friend. So she went on, turned around, went back to watching TV, and then she heard uh, whoever was in this police car hit the uh, horn briefly, like beep, beep, okay? And then right after that, Oswald comes hustling out of his room, again doesn't say anything, and then uh, is putting on a jacket, and he goes out the door, and he turns right down towards Zhang's, and uh, that was the last she saw him, and that was the last she saw the police car. Now, Officer Tippett was driving car 10, <laughs> 1 0. And uh, I strongly suspect that uh, Tippett, in some way, was involved with Oswald. And I think he pulled around the corner there on uh, Zhang's, and uh, Lee went down, turned the corner, got in the car, and that uh, it was Tippett who drove him to the Texas Theater. Uh, and then, after dropping him off at the Texas Theater, because the Butch Burroughs, the uh, assistant manager there, said that Oswald was in the theater shortly after one, in fact, came out and bought popcorn from him, and that at 1.30, yes, someone did enter the theater without paying, and uh, that's when they came in and called Oswald, but he said that was not... Oswald, Oswald was in the theater long before that. So, in other words, Oswald was in the theater at the time Officer Tippett was shot. So, Officer Tippett, I believe, dropped him off at the theater, uh, stopped across the street at the uh, Big Town Record Store, uh, ran in to use the telephone, according to employees, but couldn't raise anybody and ran out again. And at that exact time, the Dallas Police Dispatcher was trying to radio him and couldn't raise anybody because he was out of the car in the record store. And he came out, got in his car, and then turned towards town, turned up on 10th, and went east on 10th until he got to Patton, where he was uh, stopped to talk to somebody and was killed. So if Tippett was uh, was involved with Oswald in this, I guess, how do we, how do we then, we just have a couple minutes here, uh, how do we characterize Oswald's role in this was he, I mean he said he was a patsy but did did he think he was part of a, a sting operation to prevent the assassination what what, what do you think Jim well uh, well in, uh, interviewing Abraham Bolden the first uh, black secret service agent and he was telling me that there was a plot to kill Kennedy in Chicago a few weeks uh, before Dallas and that but it got broken up thanks to the warning from an FBI informant. He said he never was able to learn who this informant was, but he did understand that his name was Lee. Hello. And I happen to know, I can't prove this, but I know from several different policemen who told me that that it was widely rumored around the Dallas police station that they had received a letter a, few, a week or two before the assassination uh, warning that Kennedy was going to be killed in Dallas and they needed to strengthen the uh, security arrangements, and this letter was signed Alex J. Heidel, which was Oswald's alter ego, and they put the file in the, in the in police intelligence files, uh, but then when the FBI swept through there that weekend, the, the letter went missing and has never been seen again. I think Oswald was exactly what his mother always said, uh, a low-level operative uh, paid by the U.S. government, 
perhaps an FBI informant, certainly connected to the CIA uh, through naval intelligence, and that he was, I think he was reporting back on uh, on plots to kill the president, never realizing that the people he was reporting back to were the ones who were setting him up to be the patsy. In Oliver Stone's film, Richard, uh, he at the end of the film, he does show that Helms admitted under testimony years later that... Richard Helms, uh, CIA Helms, director. Yeah, that uh, Oswald had a CIA I- I- number and was a CIA informant as well as an FBI informant. And because we're closing off here, let's just not forget that it was Richard Russell, Sherman Cooper, and Hale Boggs, three men voted against the single, against the lone assassin theory. So three, it was a 4-3 vote. Three members of the Warren Commission did not agree totally that Oswald acted alone. There you go. Yes, and the most vociferous of those was uh, uh, Hale Boggs, who then took a government junket on an airplane up to Alaska and was never seen again, yep. uh, thus becoming one, one of the uh, dozens of convenient deaths that uh, occurred in the wake of the assassination. And his, and his daughter was given a plum job, Cokie Roberts, on ABC, and his son, Tim Robert, uh, Tim was, it became, they gave, they threw tons of business through, he was, he had a PR agency in Washington. Uh, uh, so, like, this thing is... <laughs> All right, so we're going to... It's deep, and it's bad. All right, it's let's, bad. Let, let's reconvene here in 50 years, gentlemen. Yes. <laughs> Jim Mars, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Jim Mars, Crossfire, the plot that killed Kennedy. Nelson, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Always follow the truth.